HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today is episode 74 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm very pleased to have Theo Peck from Peck's Homemade in the studio with me to talk about all things Peck's. Um, Theo and I met years ago, I believe, at a casserole cook-off. Is that right, Theo? That is true. Uh, you were uh, one of the judges. Yes, and uh, Theo and his uh, his partner in crime took first place, if I remember correctly, in that cook-off. Uh, and uh, I like to think that I played a small part in his uh, speedy ascension to uh, food stardom here in Brooklyn. People have called it a rocket launch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Theo. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was a long time ago, that casserole cook-off. Uh, it was. It came at a quite a uh, crazy time in my life. I'm, I'm not sure you knew this, but before that uh, casserole competition, I actually lost all my money in uh, Madoff. Wow. So um, I was, uh, my uh, girlfriend, now my wife at the time, had uh, told me to uh, maybe get off the couch and stop looking <laughs> depressed all day. And uh, I found this competition you might love. It's a casserole. So uh, um, everything changed after that. Awesome. Um, so is that why you answered uh, my question? I, I do a bunch of pre-show questions about who you'd like to have dinner with, Madoff being one of those people? Uh, yeah, I'd be interested to talk to him. I mean, I'm not sure if I'd be interested to talk to him uh, before or after, you know, everything came crumbling yeah. down. But um, it, is an, it is an amazing kind of a sociopath or I guess psychopath personality yeah. that, you know, affected not just me, but, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of people in a variety yeah, of ways. Absolutely. Well, and, and I mean, and the repercussions of those who weren't affected directly within the market mm-hmm. and within a lot of other things, too. Well, you know, when you answer that question, I was, I was talking to my friends and I was like, does the person actually have to want to talk to me, too? Like, you know, <laughs> like, who good, do you, I mean, like when you want to have dinner with somebody that's yeah. like, you know, I mean, I studied art history. Do I want like if I talked with Mark Rothko, would he be like, sure, he's a depressed old Jewish man. Like, is he right. care if I and buy him some borscht, you know what I mean? So it was kind of one of those things. So, But if he was willing, yeah, it'd be something I'd be interested in. You could in. watch Rothko just, like, paint with the sour cream through the borscht, though. That might be kind of cool. <laughs> to be honest, it, it would look very similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you got off the couch, stopped mm-hmm. being depressed, Yes. won a casserole competition. Correct. Uh, tell me about the intervening years between then and now with Pex having established itself on Myrtle Avenue, and now you have a new location coming up. Yes, uh, a new location uh, located at 49 Willoughby between uh, Claremont and Adelphi. Uh, the reason, um, well, you know, it's kind of hard to, to make it about uh, those intervening years, right? Sure. Because uh, previous to that, I was in the restaurant industry my whole life. My family uh, had a restaurant called Ratner's, which to uh, many people of the Jewish faith um, is a name that I can use for uh, entree into the uh, world of uh, Judaism. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got, oh, got, I remember. <laughs> exactly. I've gotten a lot of free food and a lot of uh, free, uh, a lot of free stuff based on that. Um, and so I grew up in the restaurant industry. And, um, you know, I like to say, even though I tried to get out of it, it pulled me back in. Um, I, I guess part of why I liked it so much was that my um, my aunts used to like drink scotch all the time in the back starting at 11 o'clock and just make fun of customers and have a good time and kibitz. And um, I would just love, you know, being there. We'd go two, three times a week for soup and all sorts of stuff. And um, uh, what happened is uh, after I studied art and found that to be an incredibly lucrative field, I, uh, I switched and uh, I opened up a bar. Uh, in the Lower East Side called Lansky Lounge. And then, uh, so, you know, if I, I guess I, sometimes I think that if I had lost all my money and I wasn't in the food business, there's no way I would come back. Right. Uh, so then after that, I did a variety of things. So uh, right before Madoff, I was about to open a restaurant. I'd gone to culinary school. I'd cooked at some restaurants, and uh, I actually had signed a lease. So it, it was this kind of devastating moment where... Um, what I liked about the uh, competitions, uh, one, uh, the, the elation of when you win, and that started uh, giving me more and more confidence to get back out there, to get back out. Because when something like that happens, there's a real tendency to uh, shut the blinds sure. and close the door and just be like, you know, I'll see you in 30 years. Right. Uh, but thankfully, uh, my wife was very good. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the restaurant business, especially in New York, is nothing if not risky. Uh, and 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 having this thing happen, I, I can totally imagine that that would make you really risk averse. Uh, you know, it's funny. Like when I, so many things had to happen, right? So when I open, I mean, I I go back to this real quick. Uh, when I open the bar, what I think about is how many things actually had to happen and go right in society for this bar to succeed. Um, one, you know, being there right before the Lower East Side took off, right? Sure. Uh, two, having the space and having the cachet of being, you know, the back room of an old old school Jewish restaurant. And then having swingers come out right as we're opening. Now, you know, you might think back to swingers. What I think about is they go to this uh, bar behind a Jewish restaurant. 
and all of a sudden we had opened a bar behind, behind a Jewish, Jewish restaurant right. and every, you know swingers was a kind of a cultural phenomenon yep. and next thing you know people were just pouring in and it, you know there are just a lot of things that happen and so uh, you know I don't necessarily I'm just not a risk adverse person I, I don't think things are that risky I just assume that they'll work out especially in this industry so you know I'm opening this new place and um, by the way I have to say mm-hmm. I think when I when I ran into you and you told me the name of it I just thought it was genius <laughs> I'll let you say it on the air but mm-hmm. I, I just like it's a the 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 name is a is a phrase or a, a word or an idea that my grandmother and my mother used to use. Yeah. So. Well, you know, when I'm when you look at my name, right, Peck, it's kind of a popular name. It, oddly enough, um, I started making merchandise and all these Pecks from around the world. I'm now shipping uh, merchandise around the world with the name Peck on it. They're just <laughs> like I, I didn't I didn't think that would be so amazing. Uh, today we just sent something to Germany, a whole oh, box nice. of Pecks uh, for someone whose last name is also Peck. Yeah, and uh, the founder of this German print press was actually Theodore Peck um, back in 1921. Anyway. Um, uh, so we went through a list of names, right? There was, um, you know, somebody last name's Peck. What could the second place be called? You know, uh, Pecker, Peckerhead, and, you know, <laughs> Peckstein, Peckowitz. And we finally ended up on uh, Peckish, uh, which uh, maybe I should have called the first place Peckish. I kind of like it that much. Sure. Um, but um, at first I was thinking, uh, you know, your name, stand behind your name. But uh, uh this, this, the reason also we call it peckish is because it's like a smaller version, less right. complicated. Yep. You know, so. same same idea though. A place where you can come in, you can grab coffee, you can grab a sandwich, you can you know you can get an egg sandwich. There, well, there's going to be a slight difference. So it doesn't have a. Um, we're going to be making everything at Pecks and bringing it over. So, it. but we're going to have a whole different menu. As a matter of fact, um, which I think is going to be based on the fact that we've been open a couple of years and now we have some idea of. Uh, and we have enough staff, right? You can go in a different direction and go with a little bit more, um, not finesse, but a little bit more in an area you're interested in. Yeah. So the food will be slightly different, but definitely baked goods. A lot of, um, you know, we'll be making homemade bialis and, you know, gravlocks and putting that together and doing a different, like, llama bread, you know, with, mm-hmm. like, uh, creme fraiche and onions and eggs, right? And, uh, you know, just really going with that kind of a little bit more, um, flavorful approach that, um, you know, at Pex we kind of went with this kind of, uh, you know, my background kind of being Jewish New Yorker, um, this is going to be slightly different. And the one thing is we don't have a kitchen there. So um, even though our egg sandwiches are one of our big components, uh, there we're going to be making, uh, I guess you'd say, different portable versions of egg. Sure. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, we need our eggs. And uh, it'll be uh, a lot more of a vibe place. It'll yeah. be you know, much more seating, indoor seating, um, a lot. We're trying to find uh, that mix of someplace you can hang out and relax and, you know, not necessarily do work, which I love. i got enough outlets, all that, don't get me wrong, but a place where at 10 o'clock you want to meet someone and hang out, that's where you're going to go. Cool. And when is that opening? That's a great question, Harry. Um, you know, hard, uh, the industry... Hard uh, questions here on Yeah, you know, the, uh, the industry's great. Um, I mean, maybe I'm not risk-averse, but uh, I definitely know how to find people to take their time when building their places <laughs> out. Uh, you know, we like to call them, I guess, careful. Um, uh, I don't know. If, uh, if you're listening out there, I, I, I hope you're hearing me. Uh, no, it's... It, you know what? I've said two to three weeks now for about two to three months. 
So uh, there was just a, there was just an article I think yesterday or the day before comparing our uh, our current uh, sitting monarch I mean president uh, to a to a bad contractor. Oh my god! Uh, because he says two weeks. Mm-hmm. About everything, and yeah. and it was from the point of view of someone who'd had a horrible contractor like renovating their house when they were pregnant, <laughs> and they like needed the baby's room done, and they had no water, and the contractor was saying two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. I know, and you're just like, yeah, it's gonna be two weeks, because I, I, I'm looking at this, I got no uh, belief yeah. in this. Uh, so we started actually doing some of the work ourselves, uh, Kyle and myself. I've been there. Yeah, um, but I, I I now have some confidence. I know that there's some people out there who actually. You can't hear it. Maybe faintly in the distance there's a miter saw or something going on, but I know something's being literally cut today that will be installed. So when I say So there will be weeks, progress. Yes, there is real progress. Yeah. The problem is it, it lines up with July 4th. So I figure right. we have to open up ju- after July 4th. Yeah. Uh, but then we'll be good to go. And then, uh, oh, yeah, phase two. <laughs> So, um, you know, it's clear to me um, that a lot of the inspiration behind what you do at PEX comes out of your sort of New York Jewish background. Um, Mm -hmm. And to me, there's a lot of things about that that are, it's like, you know, it's like comfort food. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, you know, comfort food, they think mac and cheese. They think, you know, uh, sort of the American staples, barbecue, fried chicken, that kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, when I see on your Instagram, like a black and white cookie mm-hmm. and borscht, and matzo ball soup, like that's the comfort food that used to be when I was a kid. I mean, I, I grew up north of the city, but when we would come into Manhattan, we would go and like we always got a black and white cookie. Mm-hmm. Or we went to the Lower East Side and we stopped by Ross and Daughters and we went to Katz's and we went to Kosar's for Bialis and like those kinds of things were always very comfortable. And mm-hmm. I felt like when I moved to when I moved to Brooklyn in '99, those things were still around, but they were starting to kind of disappear here a little bit. You didn't, like, I feel like you don't see a black and white cookie, at least not a good one, mm-hmm. all over the place like you used to. Uh, well, no, it's a very big challenge. I mean, I think that, you know, that, uh, you know, a lot of times, right, I grew up in New York my whole life. Uh, I'm a New Yorker. Um, you know, the Lower East Side in the in the 70s and 80s is, and even 90s, for that matter, you know, is really just the story of a neighborhood in flux. You know, the Jews were leaving, you know, the Dominicans moved in, and that obviously brings in a different... Uh, a different audience, yeah. right? And so, if you think about all that food, is like was concentrated down there, yeah. And you know, Ratner's had a lot of difficulty keeping up with that. You know, they had this huge bakery, but you know, they didn't necessarily want black and whites. They want something different. The the, the customers, yeah. And a lot of the Jewish customers, maybe living in Long Island, maybe up north, would come in what once every two weeks. Sure, you know what I mean. Yeah. So it, it did it did make it more challenging. And I think that for me. Uh, growing up in that neighborhood, I always, you know, as I said, it's like the matzo ball soup, the borscht, that, uh, pierogies even. Um, they were they were not just comforting, but they were comforting because they were served with a side dish of my family. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I really like about this business, um, which is the besides the long hours and the poor pay, <laughs> is, the, uh, is the fact that we all sit around and we bullshit all day. And I, I love that. And that's, to me, I need the black and white with a side of bullshit. Or yeah. like, and, and there's nothing wrong with bullshit. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's part of life. I think if we, I, I could not imagine my, uh, God bless my wife, she works in an office, right? That, you know, it's not cubicles, but it's very quiet in there. I visit her and I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't imagine. Uh, you know, it's so quiet. It's like, yeah. oh, you can hear a pin. So from someone from my perspective, I really, um, 
the comfort food is so attached to that. It's very hard for me to to see the uh, the matzo ball soup without seeing my aunts. And you know, back then you could like smoke cigarettes and right. do all sorts of weird stuff. And I mean, like they would just go up and you know take onion rolls out of people's purses and like you know make rosé wine by mixing white and red wine. It was just one of those places that. Uh, so for me, the comforting elements of it, um, of the food, are also, and I, I, I think that a lot of people maybe feel the same way. Like comfort food, it's hard to eat comfort food alone in front of your TV watching Netflix. Like I think that, I mean, I maybe have tried that, of course, eating fried chicken in front of Netflix or like uh, black and white or borscht, but it yep. doesn't feel the same for me. Yeah. Um, so it, it, to me, it's a bigger picture. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not trying to say the old days were better. You know, I think one of the exciting things about living in the city is that state of flux. And like, it's great that you can go in the Lower East Side now and you can get roast pork and you can get rice and beans and you can get all that stuff. I guess for me, it's just it's nice to know that there are still those places, you know, and that and that you can go to Peck's. And you can get a black and white, or you can get an egg sandwich, or you can get a you know a really great espresso drink that didn't exist in the seventies on the Lower East Side. No, I mean I actually, I mean something you know, Pex has really transformed over the three years we've been open. You know, when I first opened, I thought this would be some kind of like you know Jewish food center, like everything would have to somehow touch on that part of my life, you know, that Jewish part of my life, and. Just like Ratner's did, because these restaurants did serve their community, their surrounding community, which was 100% Jewish at the time. Obviously, they would make that. You know, so what I did is slowly my menu started changing. Slowly, there was more of an emphasis on the coffee and the egg sandwiches and, and, and things that were more for the parents or, you know, the people moving to the neighborhood who maybe were from Michigan or San Francisco or from France. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't like a black and white cookie or a well-done borscht or well-done. I mean, a lot of non-Jews love beets. Um, But, you know, it definitely affected the way I I changed the menu for that whole reason. Um, I I think, uh, as you can imagine, you know, that's one of the the disappointing things is that Ratner's never really changed for the times. You know, they really tried to stick it out and they had a 200-seat restaurant. So you can imagine, (laughs) you know. It's a tough, it's tough, but... Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a short break and hear from our friends at Bob's Red Mill, one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about a different soup than your borscht. I want to talk a little bit about matzo ball soup. Cynthia, host of Primary Food, here with Anna Bonengel, a registered dietitian with Eat With Zest, eatwithzest.com, and we are here to talk about Bob's Red Mill and superfoods. So, Anna, what is a superfood anyway? One way to think about it is if you think of foods along a spectrum, there are a few foods with fewer nutrients, and then there are foods that are packed rich with nutrients and antioxidants. And so superfoods are those that are on the furthest on the scale in terms of having the most nutrients and antioxidants. Which foods are considered superfoods? 
some are super well known, like blueberries, kale, salmon. But now people are also going nuts over lesser known foods like goji berries, acai, flax, and chia seeds. And a really popular one now is black garlic. So if I'm trying to eat better, should I go on a strictly superfood diet? Well, you know, superfoods are, of course, great, and I will say the more you eat, the better. However, eating only superfoods would make you deprived of essential nutrients from nourishing food groups like whole grains. Okay, got it. Well, that's great because our sponsor at HRN, Bob's Red Mill, produces a lot of delicious whole grain products. You know, to be honest, I'm a huge Bob's Red Mill fan. I love a lot of the the whole grains that they provide, but I particularly love they've come out with a blueberry hazelnut oatmeal cup. That is totally delicious. It's got classic superfoods like blueberries, but also some of the more trendy ones like flax and chia seeds. Um, it's It's a really nice mix of trend and tradition. Bob's Red Mill doesn't chase fads. They just keep working hard to offer as many delicious whole grain and organic food options as possible in an endless commitment to good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I have Theo Peck from Peck's Homemade and soon-to-open Peckish uh, in the studio. Uh, before the break, we were talking about Jewish food and borscht and some other stuff. Uh, I'm going to read the head note from Mimi Sheridan's recipe for chicken soup uh, from her book From My Mother's Kitchen, which came out in 79. Uh, it's a recipe I made this week. My wife was sick and wanted some chicken soup, so I turned to this book. Uh, you know, I, I feel I've made a lot of chicken soup in my life. I kind of have an idea of usually how I make it, but it's fun to pull out somebody's recipe and sort of read what they put in it. And and in this case, I love her headnote for it, so I'm going to read it. As might be expected in a Jewish family, this was the soup of soups, panacea for all ills, whether physical or emotional, and to my mother at least, the measure of a cook's ability. She can't even make a decent plate of soup, my mother would say, of a woman she considered not only a bad cook, but a totally worthless individual in all other aspects. It was always a plate of soup, and she was always self-congratulatory about her own. Each time she served it, she announced to all assembled that this was the best she ever made. Never did I hear her say that last week's excelled this week's, or that she was disappointed with the result. Only in recent years did she realize how difficult it is to make really good chicken soup with the chickens one has to work with today. For soup, more than any other dish, the degree of flavor in a chicken is critical. Naturally fed chickens, which were allowed to scratch and which were then killed to order and bled to death, the kosher method of killing, did actually produce lighter, clearer, more golden soup of more delicate flavor. It is still possible to get chickens killed to order that way, even though the chickens are not nearly as good as their ancestors. Still, every little bit helps. Above all, do not expect to make good soup with frozen chicken or any variety other than a fowl, which requires long, slow cooking and so imparts whatever flavor it has to the soup. If you do get a fresh-killed chicken, order it 48 hours before you intend to cook it, so it will be tender. Mm. So this was 79 when they were already lamenting bad chickens. I feel like we're kind of in a middle ground now. I feel like good chickens are sort of coming back. Uh, I once went to the live poultry market when I was in my early 20s. I was biking. I used to bike past a live poultry market in Queens mm-hmm. all the time. And one day on my way home, I stopped and I was like, oh, I'm just going to get chicken to cook. Mm-hmm. Little did I understand that when you buy a live chicken at a live poultry market, you're buying it whole. 
not <laughs> dressed. So they're like, how big do you want? And I was like, I don't know, four pounds. So I got this chicken that like after they took off the feathers and the head and the feet and the guts and everything out, it was like tiny. Uh, but it did make really good soup uh, mm-hmm. as it turned out. So uh, your matzo ball soup is one many accolades mm-hmm. at Pex. Uh, and uh, it is a chicken soup. It, it, it is a chicken soup. I, you know, it... It's you're right. It, the chickens are coming back in a sense. You know, the access to better chicken is is a lot better these days. Um, and I I do understand the lamenting. You know, I don't. It is kind of odd to see the the you know the Dolly Partons as they call them on the uh, on the Purdue chicken. You know, yep. where they can't walk. And it's yeah. I guess you. I know. I realize you love breast meat. Um, <laughs> but you know. Um, I guess growing up, I was very fortunate. My mom was uh, my mom was a chef, independent of of Ratner's, and you know we used to really have a lot of the thighs. You know, he's loved. It was always dark meat, dark meat, dark meat. Um, and so, my mom would make a lot of chicken soup growing up. And what she would do is she would do um, um, she would make the broth twice, oh. so to really concentrate the flavor. And in the second one, she would um, add chicken feet. So. In basically in our second stock, there's basically um, almost half a case of chicken feet per batch of chicken stock that we use, and what that does is it not only gives it that golden flavor, but it gives it the viscosity or that mouthfeel that I think a good chicken soup should have. It kind of coats the mouth; it doesn't feel watery. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things like when you have like these canned soups or chicken soups, it feels like like you're drinking water. Yeah, and, and it could have the flavor. Right, yep. but then it just like, kind of feels like bouillon. Yeah, and to really get that chicken flavor, I really like to not only use a, a ton of carcass and backs and necks, but then we, as I said, we finish it with uh, feet, and that just gives it the the mouthfeel that I think people at the end of the the day that's what they're that's what they're psyched about. That's what that's why it's getting the the accolades. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and later in the recipe and in the instructions, um, Mimi Sheridan talks about actually quartering the chicken so that you can use less water. So you're not putting a whole chicken, like many old chicken soup recipes say mm. that you're covering with water. So you can actually make that stock richer because you're using less water to meat sort of in bone ratio. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I was always surprised at, you know, when you come up in the culinary world, there's so many ways people are making chicken stock. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, somebody, uh, in one place I was at, you know, the guy ran the chicken through the dishwasher. Um, without soap. Um, uh, so, to, uh, you know, it would be like that quick sterilization. And yeah. I guess um, he he also felt um, he was from the Thomas Keller School. So the chicken, like, what I didn't appreciate about when I would do chicken stock at this one restaurant was the fact that it was too clean. Um, I felt like, you know, part of chicken soup, and if we're going to be talking about something that feels family and something that feels like you're with people, I, I think a sense of dirtiness is fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so uh, we're a little, we don't, we don't do that method. We don't like, you know, put it through a dishwasher or anything like that. And we, you know, there's a kind of emphasis like we'll, we'll strain it a couple of times, make sure everything's out, you know, but outside of that, um, no, that's one of the things I found that was happening is a lot of people would try to make this incredibly clean, idealized $400,000 chicken stock, <laughs> which, which you don't need. It's just, yeah. uh, appreciate the soup. There's so much, a big matzo ball in there. There's chicken, there's carrots, there's maybe some noodles. Um, are you a fan of matzo ball soup and noodles or no noodles? In my family, we, oh, we, we never, it was one or the other. You either had like my, on my dad's side, I think it was my dad's side, uh, you know, 
there was there were dumplings, so it was chicken soup with dumplings, mm-hmm. um, which really, I mean, is a pasta dough that you're then cooking. They're not like mm-hmm. dumplings the way we might think of them in our Asian-obsessed food oh. climate of the I, moment. I went to school in the South. I've had chicken dumpling go. soup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this, but, or there was matzo balls. We were never really like a chicken noodle soup. But really? and, and very rarely were there ever noodles with matzo balls. See, uh, growing up, I mean, maybe that's why I look the way I do, Harry. I mean, those noodles and matzo balls, you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> I like a chunky style, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, so this, this brings up sort of a tangential question that I have. I had a discussion recently with someone about the fact that sometimes now, um, you know, with the proliferation of the, I guess return to real butcher shops where you can go in, you can talk to a butcher, you can get the cut that you want. Often when you buy a chicken in that setting, it does not come with giblets and the neck. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was always a big part of having a chicken, whether you're making chicken soup, whether you're making roast chicken, was that while you're cooking it, you got a little snack because you got to cook the liver with some onions and you get out the crackers. And that was like always like, that was always the, you know, for to put a highfalutin word on what it was, because my grandmother would it was the amuse for the dinner. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't imagine doing that for my son today. I think he would. <laughs> I think he would be like, "What?" I, I thought. Uh, <laughs> I thought I was getting crackers as an amuse. Um, <laughs> but um, for uh, that, that it's it's interesting because what I really like to do is. Um, I like confiting all the stuff that comes out. I like taking the heart and the gizzards and, you know, packing in salt and cooking in fat and make a salad out of it. It's one of my favorite things to do. And actually, one of the more shocking things I had to do is um, I was working in a restaurant that also was on a farm. And I remember uh, there I killed my first bird. Um, It was actually a turkey, Um, but I think close enough to the chicken. And, you know, uh, first of all, killing it was incredibly disturbing. I don't know if I can do it again. Um, but then I was in charge as I worked the butcher department. Um, I was in, in charge with de-gutting uh, them. And when you get a chicken, even with the giblets and stuff, you're not really prepared for yeah. cutting a hole in the bird. Yeah. And then you pull out the entire, like... All the rest of it that we don't ever lungs see. Lungs and yeah. all sorts of grass that he's been eating. And I was just... Yeah. It took me a while, actually, to get back to uh, chicken after that. I was a little uh, put off. It's it's intense. Uh, that same... Uh, my, my father's grandmother, all of... They kept chickens when my dad was a kid. His grandmother lived with them. And all of her recipes started with, first you kill a chicken. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because that would what they would do, and it was she would go out and she'd kill the chicken, and then they would make make whatever they're going to make out of it, like ice cream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. I mean, unfortunately, you know, fortunately, living in New York City, you know, I never had that connection to food that you probably did growing up up north. You know, uh, my connection was always uh, there was a waiter between me and the food. You know, I mean, there was never a. I don't think the '70s, except on Sesame Street, that I really see a farm. Yeah, I mean, we we would stop at farm stands for sure. That was definitely a big thing we would do, um, you know. But like most good, like late '70s, early '80s uh, families, you know, we used margarine instead of butter. Um, mm. You know, we had we ate cereal out of boxes. Like it was not, you know. Uh, by the way, how did the soup turn out? 
the soup that I the soup that I yeah. made. Oh, it, it turned out it was delicious. Uh, is your wife out. better? She is, in fact. So yeah, I mean, it works. Uh, you know, <laughs> panacea for all ills. I mean, Jewish penicillin, as mm-hmm. they call it, right? Yeah, that and a good swift kick, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I I, I wait. Usually, I save that if, if she doesn't get better. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. No, I uh, I hear you. I just actually beg that my wife gets better because um, I can't handle everything. By myself, uh, as she knows that I just there's just no way I can handle life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about something that you guys started doing, uh, I believe, in January at mm-hmm. PEX, which is you have a wall uh, where it's the what we're thinking about. Yeah, and every day, right? You post something that you're thinking about related to the political climate. Well, for the first hundred days, we you know um, we definitely had a. Um, you know, I don't think it go, comes as any surprise that a, a New Yorker maybe didn't necessarily, a New Yorker who lives in Brooklyn, didn't necessarily vote for uh, Trump. Um, you know, I grew up in an incredibly liberal Jewish household on the, up, on the Upper West Side of New York. Um, you know, we voted for Carter twice. Um, and there's just, wouldn't even be a thought. I don't, I've never really um, voted any other way. So uh, having Trump come in was not just like maybe... George Bush coming in. It was, uh, it was, it, it was something. In, I mean, it was. It was a, a crush. It was a crushing blow. I think to a lot of us. It was nauseating. Least, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, we. I felt sick for for weeks just getting up to his inauguration. Um, and you know, I still there's times where I still don't believe it. I just think yeah. that we're all going to wake up. Uh, but what we did is we started putting up what we're thinking about on on the glass, and you know, looking for people to, you know, join a group um, that would. You know, be sympathetic. And it's not necessarily, we're not looking to do anything too crazy so much as to inspire others to make sure they make their phone calls or inspire others to make sure they take some action. You know, the hardest thing with, um, you're busy, you know, I'm very busy. Um, the hardest thing, like right now, I, I have some resentment towards this government because now I got to work extra hard because now there's a, I feel like I've got a, now a third job, yeah. which is to call my representative okay. and to try to make some, you know, and I think one of the hardest parts is that I think we all should feel when we look at our government, it's like, can we really make a change? Is my five phone calls working? Is this working? Is getting up at a town hall and screaming or going to a protest? And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we will never, we maybe we'll find out in a year if it does work. Uh, you know, my son has already been to three protests, and he's only, you know, five plus. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I went to my first protest when I was 18. So it's a definite, it's a definite big change, right? You know, there's a lot of things going on. And, you know, it, it, the wall was a, a way to try to focus our attentions. But also it became this idea of, like, what's really the most important? Because for someone like us, you know, uh, the state of schools is this Betsy DeVos really a a champion of public education? You know, I mean, you know, this is something that will maybe not today, but uh, in time affect my my life. You know, is Ben Carson? I mean, I don't live in assisted housing, but is Ben Carson really the best thing for society? Like, you know, there's all these fires to put out in the beginning, and now I mean, there's still Pruitt and Sessions. I mean, yeah. we can go on, and that doesn't even include the president and Comey. I mean, where do we begin? Yeah. And and so the hardest thing was just of that wall was just trying, as I said, to, you know, try to create a community because, you know, it's, it's like I said, I, I stopped cooking stuff that I didn't think the community needed or wanted. They don't want Ratners. They want 
good food that they could just take home. Rotisserie chicken is perfect for them. Do you know what I mean? Or yep. sandwiches. And it's the same with this, trying to create, trying to um, talk to my community. And, and to be honest with you, we have a great number of regulars, which I'm sure you do. Um, I felt like um, after we started doing the wall that we all got a little even closer. Like there's uh, there was a lot more of that idea of like we're all in it together. Yeah. Um, we even uh, produced a uh, sticker that you know we we give away that uh, says that we serve I don't know like all genders, races, religions, orientations. We just serve you all. I mean that's what we're about. And if you've ever been, which you. <laughs> If you ever been to Clinton Hill, which I'm hoping you have been, uh, uh, what I love about Clinton Hill is that um, it is truly one of the more diverse neighborhoods. It does remind me of like the Upper West Side when I was growing up in the 70s. Like it was a very diverse neighborhood back then. Maybe not today, but it was. And the same with Clinton Hill. At least you know, uh, I feel like you you can walk down the street and it's not it's not Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I also think that it's uh, a strong choice. I know a lot of businesses don't get into politics because they take the, the view that they do serve everybody and they don't want to alienate customers. And I, I you know, obviously your uh, the, the, what we're thinking about wall does come from a partisan belief, but I feel like it's still presented in a way that it's not you're not coming down on people who don't believe the same thing. You're just saying this is the thing I'm we're thinking about as a business and that we could all be thinking about it no matter what side of it. You're I mean, on. thank you. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're correct. I mean, that is, you know, I mean, um, you know, my wife was really kind of instrumental and in helped me think about it. And, you know, in the first couple of days I was thinking about, it, I had all these things I was saying and, you know, she was really, um, she was really strong. She was strongly uh, telling me not to get, um, to Poligo to really try to keep it as you say don't come down I mean I actually have friends who voted for Donald Trump I mean I do and we we did stop talking for a while and you know now we're back to talking and it's been a very rewarding experience for me because you know um, I was able to express to him why it was so frustrating in, in a in a polite way and instead of just being like, you know, F this and fuck you and, you know, look at what you brought down on me, you know, I'm, you know, and, you know, we did at the time get a lot of um, anti-Semitic emails um, because uh-huh. we're a Jewish place. And, you know, that it, it's funny, I, I really did not feel this fear from the anti-Semitic emails more of I just like, I don't know why I just found it hysterical that this guy wasted his time to send me an email about <laughs> turning my turning myself into... I was like, really? Like, this is your... You spent, like, tw- <laughs> 10 minutes proposing this email. Like, what right. a waste of time. Yeah. I mean, at least I hope you're p- click and pasting it somewhere so you're sending it to more people. I mean, like, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, so, you know, for me, I never found... I, I never... I, I don't worry about that. I, I, You know, we did have a customer who complained to me about it uh, who still comes in every day. And, you know, he said, you know... Ah, you know, the tax cuts. I love the tax cuts. By the way, that's an accurate impression. That's how he talks. I just want to emphasize that. He's like, I just want tax cuts. That's all. And I was like, well, look, man, there's more to it than that. Yeah. And, and you know, we had a, a great conversation, and yeah. he still comes in every day. That's great. Um, 
we're not looking to insult anybody. No, of course not. Yeah. But but it's nice to it, it's you know it what it shows me as well, and and that that anecdote shows that you've created a place that is a part of a community. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as and that you know it, it's not the same as a place that you know people are just so transient that they're just stopping in and mm-hmm. they're grabbing a coffee and they don't talk to anybody and they don't look around. So the fact is that you you know I mean and obviously I'm sure you have mm-hmm. customers like that who are like oh, I need a coffee right now. Where's the closest coffee? Yeah, yeah. But you know you have people who are coming in who are engaging with you and it is a dialogue and you are a part of the fabric of that neighborhood. Yeah, well, you know, also I think that what I've learned a little bit, you know, you know, having grown up and, you know, having a a place in Manhattan when I was growing up, uh, you know, a couple of businesses in Manhattan that people would necessarily travel to, right? You know, there weren't, you know, you travel to Ratner's or travel to my bar. Um, But now we have a business where, you know, it's very specific for the neighborhood. And the people who come live within a certain area. What I've noticed is that uh, these kind of businesses that you have, like the people who open these coffee and sandwich shops uh, with meat and cheese, maybe a light grocery, what we do is you're really serving a, a, a finite community. And that's what's amazing about New York because, you know, 10 blocks away there might be something similar. Right. And and that's fine. I mean, that's what it's – they're eight – Point five million people in the city. I mean, we, you know, and yeah. not all live in Staten Island. There's some yeah. live in Brooklyn. Um, so, you know, that I think also makes it because the people, the customers in my store, are coworkers and neighbors. And so, even when you're sitting, ne- when you're standing next to someone online, you're like, oh man, yeah, you live in four B. Hey, how are you? And I think that's what helps make it a community place. Now, if people were, let's say man, i got to drive all the way for this matzo ball soup and, and come here. I've got to drive all this way for a black and white. And the guy's like, yeah, I just drove all the way from Manhattan. Oh, yeah. i just got to try this soup. Right. You wouldn't get the same uh, response. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you. It's been a really fun conversation. We're, we're out of time. Is there anything? So two to three weeks on Peckish, we think. Uh, uh, yeah, look, I'm going to. I'm going to lay it out here. Let's promo this, right, Harry? Yeah. Let's let's talk about Peckish. It's yeah. going to be at uh, 49 Willoughby Avenue between uh, Claremont and Delphi. I would start looking for it after July 4th weekend. Um, if you have any questions, pexhomemade.com, or just give the shop a call and ask for Kyle. And you can follow <laughs> everything that's going on in the social media realm at Pex Food. Yes. Uh, you should check out their Instagram. It's, uh, it's a great mix of things from the shop. There's pictures of Theo's son. Uh, a, lot of, you know, a, lot of, a lot of great stuff uh, in there. Yeah. And uh, as I said, thank you very much for having me uh, down here. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm hoping to grab some pizza on the way out and like, uh, make a day of it. Thank you, Harry. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. A big thank you to David Tattashore for engineering the show every week. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. I have to make a shameless plug for my first book, which comes out August 1st. Vinegar Revival is a guide to making and using vinegar at home. You can pre-order it at vinegarrevival.com or on Amazon or from your local bookstore. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes if you, in fact, enjoyed this. And please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.